Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 19. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 19. The author of Hebrews has been exhorting this group of Christians to hang in there in their Christian life. They're going through tremendous trials and tribulation and distress and adversity and persecution. And many of them are ready to give up, to give in, to throw in the towel and just call it quits. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes this letter to them saying, don't give up, keep on progressing, keep on moving forward with Jesus Christ. There is nothing behind you. You you can't go back. There's nothing back there anyway. As hard as it is, keep on moving forward. And everything that he's going to tell them in this letter is basically to encourage, to strengthen, to exhort them to continue to move forward, but to do so together. To do so together as a corporate body of believers. Because what we're going to again be reminded of today and what we learn today is this. The spiritual environment that you and I are in as believers. Who we do our Christian life together with. Is going to be real key to the health and well-being of our own spiritual life. If we, if we're not part of a vibrant Christian community that does church the way God designed the church to be, then we probably will struggle. If we do not desire to even be a part of the church, we're going to struggle in our spiritual life. But if we are part of a growing group of Christians who are going after God with all their heart, and who are doing church as God prescribed church to be done, then the author says, you and I have a much better chance of hanging in there, not getting discouraged. When we do get discouraged and maybe filled with despair, we've got a support system around us to go with us through these things. He's saying, you're going to set yourself up much better as a Christian by who you choose to be a part of as far as the body of Christ. That's why you'll notice in verse 19, he addresses these folks as brothers and sisters. And then beginning in verse 23, uh, or excuse me, 22, 23, and 24, notice he uses the words, let us. Let us do this. Let us do that. Let us go after this. Because as he sees it, it's not just one of us. It needs to be all of us, that just as, say, a bad negative spiritual environment can certainly detract and discourage us from moving forward spiritually, just the opposite is true. Being part of a body of believers in a church, again, that does church the way the Bible prescribes, and and to be part of a group where we're all moving forward with Christ, oh my goodness, that's going to encourage and enhance our own faith as well. So that's what the author is talking about. Now, as you all have been here through this study, I'm sure it might have, uh, you know, caused you to pause whenever I said to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, because you're going, wait a minute, we left off in chapter 6. What happened to chapter 7, 8, 9, and part of 10? Well, as I said when we started this, this was not going to be a verse-by-verse exhaustive study through the book of Hebrews. And, and right in the middle of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, and the first part of 10, the author sort of takes a break from speaking directly to the re- recipients of this letter 
And he builds basically a, a historical lesson, if you will, on the priesthood uh, of the Old Testament, reminding these first century Jews what the priesthood was all about. And then how things have changed for them as New Testament Christians since Christ came to earth and became our high priest. So everything now, beginning in chapter 10, verse 19, is built on the historical uh, lessons that he's taught in 7, 8, 9, and part of 10. And it's not that these things aren't important. I would just encourage you to read those chapters and maybe study them on your own. But I want to get to the parts where he's then saying, now based on this... This is what you and I as Christians need to do. Because as you know, as your pastor, one of the things I strive to do each week, whether it's Wednesday or Sunday, is to give us all things that we can truly take with us every day in our Christian life that we can practically apply. And so beginning in chapter 10, verse 19, these are the things that we can begin to practically apply out of the lessons on the priesthood that he shares with us in 7, 8, 9, and part of chapter 10. And here, before we get to verse 19 of chapter 10, here's in a nutshell what he's reminding his readers of and he's reminding us of. In the Old Testament economy, before Jesus Christ came to earth, lived his life, went to the cross, and died on that cross as our substitute and sacrificing himself for us. In order for someone to sort of connect with God, it was a sort of a, a different you know, way in the Old Testament. People didn't just all of a sudden dial up God, if you will, like we can today, they had to wait for God to speak or contact them. And as far as thinking about someone going into the presence of God, okay, the very presence of God, no ordinary human being could ever just enter into the presence of God. In fact, in the Old Testament, the only person that was given permission by God to literally enter a place where his presence dwelt, which in the Old Testament it's called the Holy of Holies. It was this little square room, 15 by 15 by 15. It literally was a cube. And, and it was where the presence of God dwelt during the Old Testament times. And only one person could enter that holy of holies where the presence of God dwelt and only once a year. He was the high priest and the only time he could go in was on the day of atonement. Now think about that. Think about that for a moment. Only one person could ever come into the presence of God and that person was the high priest. And only he could enter the Holy of Holies once a year on one day, the Day of Atonement. And he had to even, before he entered, go through all this rigmarole, okay? And, and the reason was because God wanted to establish with his people that he is a holy God. 
And you and I who are sinful human beings cannot just, you know, enter the presence of a holy God anytime we want to on our own. That just cannot happen, you see. So he was establishing all of this throughout the Old Testament. And yet, as the author of Hebrews reminds his readers and reminds us, because of what Jesus Christ did, oh my goodness, we now have a new position with God that the Old Testament saints never had and never enjoyed pre-Jesus coming to earth. That's why he says here in verse 19, look at what he says. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus. The sanctuary he's talking about there is really heaven itself, the very presence of God. If you go back over to chapter 9, look at verse 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, the representation of the true sanctuary, but into heaven itself, and he appears now in God's presence for us. The author is trying to get his readers and us to see the magnitude of something here. That many times you and I do not appreciate and we take so much for granted. And that is this. That because of what Jesus did, because of the blood that he shed, because of his sacrifice, you and I have now a new position with God. We have been transferred, as Paul says to the Colossians, out of the kingdom of darkness. And we have been transferred into the kingdom of the son he loves. And we now have a new position. In a sense, it's like God, through Jesus Christ, has given all of us a promotion. We have all been promoted to a new position in life. We are now in Christ. And we now... As New Testament Christians, based on what Christ has done, we now can enter into the very presence of God. Something that only the high priest could do and only once a year. You and I now, just common everyday human beings who are saved by the blood of Jesus, now we can come into the presence of God anytime we like, not only once a year, and we don't have to be some high priest. Any of us have that kind of access. Now, based on that, he's saying, you you realize then the privilege that we have as New Testament Christians. What, What only Old Testament followers of God could dream about, we get to do all the time. And the author, I think, in in a sort of an underhanded way, is also saying. Are we truly appreciating that privilege? Are we taking advantage of that privilege like we could or like we should as New Testament believers? That we, through what Jesus has done, can enter into the very presence of God. With that, he also goes on in verse 20 to say, By a fresh and living way, a way that provides energy, vitality, strength, and stamina to us. You and I will know in our Christian life whether we are taking advantage of the privilege of entering into the presence of God because we'll be able to see it in our own life. Is our life filling up with strength and spiritual stamina? 
Is our life full of vitality and energy for God? Because where does all that happen? How, how do I get that? By going to the presence of God and fellowshipping with God and spending time with God that you and I can do because of the blood of Jesus. When you and I do not spend time in God's presence, even though it's our privilege to do so, our individual Christian lives will suffer. We won't have the spiritual strength and stamina and stability and vitality and energy that we could have if we made it a priority to take hold of this privilege that we have and come into God's presence on a continual basis. And throughout even the Word of God, we see how God encourages us to do so with different stories throughout the Bible. Stories like... Mary sitting at his feet while Martha's too busy to sit at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says, you know, she chose the better thing. You can always be up doing something, but isn't it good to spend time in my presence? Isn't that the best thing? And so he commends Mary for that. Over and over again, we see this pattern throughout the Bible. And so then he says in verse 24, or excuse me, 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart. So the first thing that he's establishing is this. We have a new position because we're a Christian. He took us out of the kingdom of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his son. And because now we have this new position, we are in Christ. We have this great privilege, a privilege that people didn't have in the Old Testament times. Only one person, only once a year. And we have that privilege every day, every minute of the day. And we all have it. Not just a certain elite group of people can go into the presence of God. Anyone who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior and who has the blood of Christ applied to their life as the Passover lamb, who has a personal relationship with God, any one of us now has the privilege of entering in to the very presence of God. And when you and I spend time in God's presence, it will show up in our life. That, that fellowship that we have with God, that, that uh, time that we spend with God, that, that time that we're in His presence will, will just transform us. It will give us what nothing else or no one else could ever give us because we're in direct contact and fellowship with the one and only true God. Now, like anything else though in life, when you and I have privileges that are granted to us, there are also corresponding responsibilities. And even though you and I live in a world where everyone wants to concentrate on the privileges, but very few want to focus on the responsibilities, the author of Hebrews says, whoa, we got to talk about these responsibilities. Because now that we've been given this great privilege of being able to come into the presence of God, God now holds us responsible for certain things as New Testament Christians. 
So beginning in verse 22, he says, let us draw near with a sincere heart. Now, again, remember the first two words, let us. Why? Because at the end of verse 21, he reminds us that we have a high priest, a personal representative, Jesus Christ, over the house of God, literally the family of God. And he's reminding us there of something. When you and I are placed in a new position, if you will, with God through Jesus Christ, we are automatically then also placed in a new position with other people. Because God, the Bible says, when we accept Jesus Christ, we are automatically, through the Holy Spirit, placed into the body of Christ. And therefore, whether we like it or not, we are now in interconnected with other Christians into his body. And we are connected to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, not only then do we have responsibilities to God, but we also now assume responsibility towards each other. And that's why he uses the phrase, Let us, let us, let us. Because we are all held responsible before God. Because we've all been given this great privilege. And how you and I carry out our responsibilities is going to be directly linked to how we're doing this privilege thing of coming into his presence. If we are a Christian that's neglecting the presence of God and not entering into fellowship with God and not spending time with God, then we probably, in fact, I can we won't fulfill these responsibilities. That's why he places this in the order that he does here in this passage. It's only when you and I go into the presence of God, spend time with God, fellowship with God, that we are able then to fulfill these responsibilities. So let's talk about these today because they're very important. Why? Because these responsibilities are given to us so that you and I, as the family of God, brothers and sisters, know what we need to do to create such a positive spiritual environment where people can come and truly encounter God and experience Him in such a way that will continue to encourage them to progress and move forward in their Christian life rather than getting to a place where they're filled with discouragement and despair and ready to give up, quit, and throw in the towel. It's up to all of us, as he said. Not just a pastor, not just the spiritual leaders of the church, but it's all of our responsibility, which is again why he addresses them as, let us. And the first responsibility has to do with our worship. He says, let us draw near with a sincere heart in the assurance that faith brings, because we've had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Basically, he's just reminding us about what God did through our salvation. He brought deliverance. He brought brought spiritual healing. He purified us. He cleansed us before him so that we were fit for his presence. But so that we could also appropriately and properly worship him, which is what he means by let us draw near with a sincere heart. 
It means to seek God. It means that our passion, our desire, our choice is God. Above everything else, we want more of God. One of the things I try to do is listen to Christian radio. And right now, there's a fairly new song out on the Christian airwaves by a group named Selah called More of You. I love that song because it's just a reminder that, God, all we want is more of you. That's what he's talking about here. That's what it means to draw near to God with a sincere heart. That, God, it's all about you. My passion in life is you. My desire in life is to know more of you, God. My, my choice, God, if I have a choice at all, it's always going to be, I choose you, God, above anyone and everything else. And notice here that as he calls us to be a people corporately who worship God like this, that he says we must do so with a sincere heart. What's he mean by that? He means that that God wants to see a group of people that worship him because we want to, not because we feel we have to. Think about this with me for a moment. Why is it that we as human beings, even Christians, if we feel that we don't have to do something, why is it that our commitment and devotion to things, if we don't have to do it, is less than if we feel we have to? Why is that? You ever think about that? Because you see this all the time amongst Christians. Let me give you examples. We don't live under law. And we don't want to be a church or a group of Christians that operates in a legalistic environment, you see. And we don't want to teach people that you and I should do the things that we do because we feel we have to. That's what religion teaches. And I passed church after church on my way to this one on Sunday morning where the parking lots are filled up early in the morning and everyone is there on time. And everyone is there pretty much every week. And why are they there? Why are they so devoted? Why are they so committed? Because they feel they have to do it. And yet, why is it if we realize what God has done for us and who we are in Christ, why is it that those of us that don't feel like we have to do things Why are we less committed and less devoted? You see, when we are in an environment where God wants to see that we do things because we want to, not because we feel we have to, shouldn't, especially for those of us who know the real, true, living God and have a relationship with Him and can come into His presence, shouldn't our commitment and devotion to anything and everything about Him be even more, not less? But that's not what you see amongst Christians today. That's what God wants to see. That's what it means by a sincere heart. That I read my Bible and I get into it because I want to, not because I feel like I have to. 
that I pray to God, not because I feel like I have to, but because I want to. I have a sincere heart. I don't come to church faithfully, regularly, because I feel I have to, but because I want to. That's what it means to draw near to God with a sincere heart. And God is saying, I don't make you do anything. Because I don't want followers of me doing the things that they do in life and making the choices and decisions they make because they feel they have to. Where, what value is that? And yet that's what many people across this country and across this world are doing right now and do weekly because that's what their religion dictates to them. That's what their faith dictates to them. In order for me to have a relationship with God or have good standing with God, I've got to do certain things. No, our relationship with God isn't based on what we do, but what on Christ has done. All we're called to do is place faith in it. But because of that, because it's based on grace and not law, somehow we aren't as committed and devoted because it's like, well, I don't have to do anything. So I choose to do very little. God says, where's my sincere hearts? Where are the hearts out there in the body of Christ to do what we do because we want to? Not because we feel we have to. Worship. That's what worship's all about. You know. It's hoping to create a group of people that can't wait to get to church, say, on Sunday and be here right at 10 o'clock to be part of worship. Not because we have to, but because we want to. I can't wait to lift up my voice in praise to God. I can't wait to let my brothers and sisters in Christ know how much God means to me. I want to do this. Not because I have to. Then the next responsibility we have is toward the Word of God. Not only toward worship, but towards the Word. And verse 23, and let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess for the one who made the promises trustworthy. Remember, the word hope that we've been talking about throughout our study of the book of Hebrews simply means to trust in what God has said, to believe that what God has revealed is truth, that God's going to do what God said he's going to do. And the author here says that our relationship then with the Word of God should be this, that we hold unwaveringly. It means to keep one's heading, to hold a ship on course. It was definitely a navigational term in Bible times. It would be like the author saying, this is what God has revealed. This is His Word. We dare not take our eyes off of it to navigate life one moment. This is what we need, and we need to hold unwaveringly to it. We can't deviate this way or that way, because the ship, if you will, of our life is going to end up on the rocks. We're going to end up in shipwreck. We're, we're going to have something happen unless we hold steady to his word and hold unwaveringly to its direction and instructions. Too often... We pick and choose the things out of God's word that we want 
to apply to navigate our life. And the author is saying to all of us here, it all applies. And we shouldn't be in a position where, well, we like that, so we'll apply that. We don't like that. We're not going to. He said, it's all necessary. We've got to become familiar with this word, and then we've got to hold unwaveringly to it. Because he goes on to say, listen, whatever God has said is trustworthy, it's faithful, it's reliable, it's dependable. You can navigate life with this and this alone. It's all you and I need. We don't need anything else but the word of God. It is the one indispensable tool that we need to get through life and to do so in order to bring glory and honor to God. What we need to do is hold unwaveringly to it. See, just like in their day, as Christians, they were becoming persecuted. The things that they were holding to and, and holding forth and, and, and the standards that they were espousing were not popular. And so for many Christians, the pressures of the world begin to say, no, we'll, we'll let go of some things. We're not going to hold any more to those things because it's too hard. It brings on us too much, you know, persecution and, and all of that. And it's certainly not what everyone else thinks. So we'll just let go of some things. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no matter what time in history we live in, no matter what the world thinks, no matter what our culture thinks, no matter how it deviates from the word of God, you and I are responsible because we've now been given the privilege of entering into God's presence at all times and any time to hold unwaveringly to this hope. The hope that is grounded in his word. And so he's saying we have a responsibility in worship and we have a responsibility with the word. But finally today in verses 24 and 25, he really spends even more time on our responsibility towards one another. Notice what he says in verse 24. And let us take thought of how to spur one another on to love and good works. First of all, let's talk about the words spur on. It means to inspire or motivate one another. See, we have a responsibility as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ to live in such a way as followers of Jesus Christ that our life inspires and motivates other Christians. Let me ask you, do you have another Christian in your life that inspires and motivates you on a regular basis? Let me ask you this. Do you know if your life inspires and motivates any other Christians? If a group of Christians got together and started to share the blessings of, of God in their life? Would your name come up as one that says, you know what, this person over here, 
They motivate me spiritually. They inspire me. That's what it means to spur one another on. And it is a responsibility that we have. And back up a little bit further. He says we should take thought of even how to do this. These words speak about careful consideration and concentration. In other words, he says, do you realize as a Christian, we should spend time even thinking about how we do this to each other. That we shouldn't just do it unprepared. That we shouldn't just do it flippantly. Or think, well, we'll just figure it out. No, he says, it's our responsibility before God that when we have time alone and we maybe even are spending time with God, that we ask God and that we seek and we even think through. I've got somebody, Lord, a fellow brother or sister in Christ on my heart and, and I want to inspire them. I want to motivate them. How do I do that? How do I do this? What, what can I do in their life to to spur them on and encourage them and build them up. The Bible says this is something we should take time to think on. So here may be a sobering, convicting question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. When was the last time you and I took time to do what Hebrews 10.24 says. When was the last time we took time to think about how we could inspire or motivate another brother or sister in Christ? Now think about though what he's saying here. If, if, if every believer in the body was doing that, oh my goodness. how our, all of our lives could be transformed. To be part of a body where people aren't coming to church for themselves, but we're coming to church for others. That yes, even though we live in a very narcissistic, self-absorbed, selfless, selfish society, God says, I want to call my people into a relationship with each other where instead of it being about them, it's about others. But today, that's not what the church is about, is it? Most people pick the churches they go to because of what the church does for them. Well, they've got this program over here, and it, that's what I like. Or, I feel good when I go to that church. Or, you know, I like the music. Makes me feel good. Not that any of those things are necessarily bad. But really, that's, that's the best you can do, huh? See, I, I think God calls us to be part of a body because He's looking at what He's given to us and how what He's given to us can benefit those around us. Which is why then, in verse 25, He says this. Therefore, do not abandon your own meetings. The word abandon is a very strong word. It means to desert one another or forsake one another. So think about what he's saying. He's saying, 
When you and I, as brothers and sisters in a body, in a community of believers, when we, for, when we don't come together with each other like we should, as consistently and faithfully as we should, we're abandoning our brothers and sisters. We're deserting them. Because God wants to use us to encourage them, to strengthen them, to serve them, to use our spiritual gifts and talents and abilities that he's given us to build our brothers and sisters up. And when we're not there, then they can't benefit from what God has given us. And God looks at that as us abandoning. We are not fulfilling our responsibility as Christians. See, we are responsible before God to consistently assemble and gather together. That's what the word meetings means. God says, my people should meet consistently. That's how we are strengthened. That's how we're supported. That's how we grow. That's how we become part of a group of people where we're all mutually encouraging each other. Notice he says, as some are in the habit of doing. Now he uses this word in a negative way. He's saying they've grown out of the habit, the custom, the pattern or practice of meeting on a consistent basis. And that's really true about church, isn't it? You and I can get into the habit of coming to the church or we can grow out of the habit of coming to church. And again... You'll never hear me teach, well, you should be in church because you have to be. Because that's not biblical. But what you will hear me teach based upon the word of God is, you and I should be in church consistently because we want to be. Because we understand our responsibility before God based on the great privileges that he's given us. And we not only have a responsibility in worship towards God and toward His Word, but we have a responsibility towards one another. I was sharing with our leadership last night. When Jesus lived on this earth, do you know where He was every Sabbath? He was in the house of God. Do you think if Jesus was here on earth today, where do you think he'd be on a Sunday? Habits. How do I create a habit in my life? Do something consistently for two months. And normally it becomes a habit. So that means, based on connecting it with this, Come eight straight Sundays without interruption. And you'll develop the habit of being in church on Sunday. You do anything for two months straight, consistent, and it probably will become a habit in your life. For these folks, they had lost that habit. And notice what he says. Don't lose the habit of meeting together, but encourage each other. It means to come alongside and strengthen each other. And he says, even more so. In other words, we should increase even the frequency of coming together because you see the day drawing near. The day of what? 
I believe he's referring to the day of the Lord, which begins with the rapture of the church. In other words, he's saying that the end of this present age is coming to a close. And based on that, he's saying, you realize as Christians that as we get closer to the end of this present age and the day of the Lord that begins with the rapture of the church, that things aren't going to get easier for Christians. They're going to get harder. We're going to become less and less uh, appreciated and applauded by the world. We will become more and more persecuted. And many Christians even around the world today are in jails, are being murdered because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Thank God, yet it has not come to America yet. But my friends, this day of persecution is coming to our country as well. It's not easy being a Christian in this world and standing up for righteousness. And so he's saying, don't you need a little bit more encouragement, especially now? Because life is only going to get harder for those who want to stand up for Christ. Don't you need even more encouragement and strength from your fellow brothers and sisters and support now instead of feeling like you're out there on your own in this world trying to navigate? That's why he's calling us all to take on this responsibility. Not for ourselves, but for one another. We've been given a great privilege. Unlike in the Old Testament, we don't wait on God to speak to us, to talk to him. And we're not a high priest who only enters the Holy of Holies once a year to come into God's presence. We live because of Jesus Christ in a time where you and I can enter the presence of God anytime we want and spend time with Him and fellowship with Him. And based upon that privilege, God says, here are the responsibilities. You're responsible in your worship. You're responsible with my word. And you're responsible towards one another. Step up to those responsibilities, God is saying. And be a light for me in the darkness of this world. I've run way over today. Sorry. I get a little passionate about these things. So I'm just going to ask the worship team, you just stay where you're at. We're going to let this message today marinate with us. And we're going to ask God to take his message today and hopefully burn it into our hearts and make us a local church that God is pleased with. Let's pray. God, so often as followers of Jesus Christ, we take our privileges for granted. And we come to seasons in our life and times in our life where we fail to appreciate what we've been given through Jesus Christ. But when we begin to compare it to the Old Testament days, we begin to realize just what a great privilege we have. And God, I pray today that all of us will be 
inspired and motivated to use that privilege more often. To spend more time with you and to come into your presence more because, Lord, it's in your presence that we're transformed. It's in your presence that we are changed. It's in your presence, God, that we get the vitality and energy and strength and stamina and stability for life. So, God, may we, may we be people who come continually into your presence. But, God, out of that, may we also become a people who are very well aware of our responsibilities because of our privileges. That we have a responsibility to worship you with a sincere heart. Never because we feel we have to. Not because of any external pressure, but because there's a burning inside of us from our own heart that we want you, God, more than anything else. And that we do the things that we do and we make the sacrifices that we make and we serve the way that we do because we want to. Not because we ever feel we have to. And God, help us to see our responsibility with your word. And help us to see, God, our responsibility towards one another. Grow us, God, here at the Oasis into a church that's on fire for Jesus Christ. A church that burns bright with your light in the darkness of this world. Drawing many people into you, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.